I'm scared of big government. And it seems like, especially over the last hundred years, uh, millions, hundreds of millions of people killed in mass killings by big governments, very too big governments. Um, and really the, you know, the whole, whole of history, uh, we have every reason to be scared of governments. And isn't it interesting that if you flip that a little bit, government seems to want us to be scared of everything else, anything, something we have to be scared of. And at the close of this uh, podcast, um, This Week in Common Sense, you can always get Common Sense by going to thisiscommonsense.org. But at the close of this podcast, we'll f come full circle, and uh, and I think it'll be clear why it's important to uh, to to look at risks, and uh, and to not enlarge risks bigger than they are, and maybe to uh, consider that maybe the people who are telling you about all the risks are a little bit risky themselves. Normally, I interrupt and you know have an insert saying that this is coming. This is this week in common sense, starring Paul Jacob. But yes, that's you, Paul Jacob. And I, recently, I've even been telling people that who I am, Timothy Vercola. Not that they care, but that's you know just formalities. But you've already introduced the the, the podcast, so we can just jump right back into it without any big falter all. Well, let's start with Tuesday's commentary, suspended for dissent. And it's a uh, it's about a Sunni Genesee uh, uh, student, a student wanting to become a teacher. So he's in the Department of Education or the Education School or whatever. And Sunni, of course, is State University of New York. Uh, for those who uh, don't know, uh, now you do. And uh, he believes that there are only two sexes or genders, male and female. Now, uh, I, had a, I had someone leave a comment. Maybe it was Tom Knapp uh, at, the, uh, at the website saying, maybe if this guy's a biology professor, let's hope that he actually learns some biology. Because, of course, there are hermaphrodites who have both male and female genitalia. And, um, and so there's, you know, there's that. But, but look, uh, he makes a comment. He... Uh, he he has his opinion, and he's basically suspended because his opinion isn't the the uh, uh, the tolerant one. That's kind of the, the you know that's the other really interesting thing about this is his problem is that he said something that wasn't tolerant, although he did nothing to anyone else. In no way did he not tolerate the opinions of other people and he and the administration comes down on him which of course is the very definition of not being tolerant um we live in extremely screwed up thinking times screwed up times and because of screwed up thinking and these sorts, you know, it, it used to be that uh, we've done common sense for over 20 years now, uh, a, a daily commentary. And so we've dealt with a lot of um, zero tolerance 
used to be the, uh, you know, to, to get rid of people who aren't tolerant, we need zero tolerance or who aren't respectful or this or that. Um, and of course, those were usually stories of some, you know, some eight-year-old girl who brought a knife to school to cut up her apple, a butter knife, and was suspended as a vicious criminal who probably should have been sent to Attica, you know, that kind of, because she wielded a knife, you know. Um, and and now it's, uh, it's, it's cancel culture, it's zero tolerance, but most of all, it's let's create a national truth. We'll do it politically. We'll decide what is true. And everybody must believe that and say that and salute that and march in step to that. And if you don't see that that is the very antithesis of the whole beauty of America, well, something bad is wrong with, with you. And, uh, and I think, I think if, if, if people didn't have this swirl of, you should hate them. So whatever they say doesn't count. If there wasn't, if there was a more robust debate, I don't, I don't think there's any way that the American people would come down on the side of let's shut everybody up who doesn't agree with the official narrative. And frankly, in places all over the world where they're hitting the kill switch on the internet or in China where you've got social, you know, what is it, social credit scores, and you've got all this, this control of the, of the media and of every possible way to communicate. Uh, a few weeks ago when Clubhouse, uh, you know, a new app where you can communicate was there and was available and Chinese folks could say what they wanted to say. There was all kinds of vicious criticism of the controls in their country. And, and this, is, this is the very, the fight we've had for, for millennia and more, many millennia. What's that? Is, there, is that millennia? <laughs> Let's not go there. I have, see, I have seen millennia used in the singular, millenniums used as plural. I mean, I, people get confused on the word, so maybe we should just anyway, not go there. <laughs> for a very long time, there has been the fight over freedom of speech because at the very essence, in fact, it is, it's why it's right to have it as the First Amendment and the right to bear arms as the second. Those two are so critical. It is critical that we have the power to defend ourselves, the real firepower to defend the, ourselves in mass should our government become abusive. But the, the whole scope of history shows that when people are free to speak, they say important things and people hear them and take actions. You can't have free speech and tyranny for any period of time because significant period of time because people will revolt. And we see that in what China's doing, not only in China, but around the world where they're trying to control what universities in Australia and in the United States of America, what students and professors can say. But we also see it in our own government all the time. And we see it in academia, which is the ladder to success. And of course, thank God, 
it's not the only ladder to success in America and that academia doesn't control more, but we see it in the way that they are trying to force you to believe a certain thing. You want a job, you better be in with the Communist Party, or uh, not the Communist Party, with whatever woke thing is going on in the United States of America. I got confused as to which country it was for a second. Um, but anyway, uh, so that was Tuesday's commentary, suspended for dissent. Um, and I encourage you to go to thisiscommonsense.org and, uh, and give it a read. Most of these commentaries are uh, under 300 words, 250, 275 words. Uh, we're not trying to take up a lot of time. Uh, we don't have long diatribes, just short diatribes. Uh, and, and you know, we, we always have links to more information to the stories we're talking about. So, you know, we're not, you don't have to trust us that we're quoting people correctly. You can go right to the source. Uh, but go there and, uh, and give it a read. On Monday, which we skipped over, uh, we did now safe to blame, question mark. And, and this is something that I, I wonder if people, you know, you've seen it, we've talked about it. Now that Trump is not in office, and we've, we've got two scripts this week, but I think there's been so many more occurrences. Uh, but there just seems to be a different tone in the media. Uh, uh, it's just like there was a switch that was thrown. I remember uh, my wife saying, you know, oh, my goodness, like this was, you know, six, eight months ago or something. She read a headline in The Washington Post that was it wasn't, you know, glowing about Trump, but it wasn't nasty. <laughs> she said there's, there's like a, almost a nice headline mentioning Donald Trump in the newspaper. And, uh, you know, it just strikes you as such a strange thing. And then, of course, as soon as Biden is president, you've got headlines like Biden picks, you know, experienced, uh, excellent staff for State Department or, you know, I mean, it was just but it, all the headlines are instead of critical or complimentary. Um, but not now safe to blame, I think, is really. Boy, it implicates so many things. Here's what the story is about. It's about. China and the coronavirus uh, and the fact that they covered it up, that they, it, and that's not even quite accurate. They did more than cover it up. They didn't just block information from getting out. They destroyed information so that was critical so that it wouldn't get out. They lied about things. And what's interesting is there's a, Josh Rogan had a, a piece in the Washington Post. He's written quite a bit about uh, Asia and and uh, these issues. And I, I kind of like them, which, you know, I, I just have fits every day reading the Washington Post. So it's it's somewhat strange. And I disagree with him on some things. And he's, you know, hypercritical of, of Trump, uh, even on on a lot of these issues where but he acknowledges that, you know, and, and continually acknowledges Trump was the first president to kind of change the direction of our of our uh, relationship with China. And I, and I think everyone acknowledges, uh, in fact, even the new uh, secretary of state uh, acknowledges that Trump had the right position on China. And that is not just an acknowledgement that, oh, he improved on the excellent position we already had. He totally reversed that position. 
That means the position we had before that in the Obama administration and before that in the Bush administration, before that in the Clinton administration, before that in the Bush administration, you can probably go further back, you can, was not good, uh, was going the wrong direction. And so anyway, um, what's interesting is the full-throated throughout the whole campaign, I read stories about Trump hitting China on lying about the virus. I saw very little verbiage confirming the truth of what Trump was saying. And I saw almost always an immediate jump to Trump is using this as a campaign thing. He has to he has to hide, you know, his own poor performance. And so he attacks China. And then maybe on the you know 16th or 26th graph in the story, if you read that far, it might acknowledge that, yes, China had covered up all this kind of stuff. Now, these acknowledgments are much more uh, full throated that China is a bad actor. And one of the things I say in this commentary, you know, uh, Biden kind of looked silly by saying that, oh, China's not, this is during the campaign, uh, China's not uh, any real competition for us, you know, and then kind of saying folksy, you know, uh, hey, they're, you know, they're, they're not bad folks, folks, but, uh, you know, they're no competition for us. Well, he was wrong about them being no competition for us. But let me just say unequivocally, the fact that they're economic competition for us, well, bully for them. They got every right to be economic competition for us. And let me also state that I think that a free and democratic China will be even more competitive, will kick more of our butts economically than the current Chinazi regime uh, that's run by the CCP. So this is not, to me, this has almost zero to do with competitiveness, except that we've allowed them to steal all kinds of things. And I, I don't like people to win competitions by cheating, which is how China likes to do it. And, and we seem to encourage it. I mean, when, when someone's cheating you all the time and you don't do anything about it, uh, it, it kind of says maybe you don't mind. Anyway, this this uh, this change. Uh, well, all last year, uh, it just infuriated me that they're not, you know, they're not highlighting the fact of what a bad actor China is. And uh, about the bad folks thing is, I made it, I, it was the first time I kind of addressed that in this commentary where I was able to say, you know what, they actually are bad folks. That's part of the problem here, and part of. Uh, there was a, uh, uh, I think I may write something for next week on this, uh, just because I've been thinking about it, but Pat Buchanan, a guy I like, don't always agree with him on foreign policy, on other policies, but a guy that I got to know through the term limits movement, uh, because he was a pretty big supporter and, you know, had a, uh, you know, was politically uh, somebody who, who was important in the 90s, and uh, and he wrote an op-ed, and he, he, he basically asked the question, you know, uh, who does Taiwan belong to? And um, and it just you know it just occurred to me that it's like who does you know who does Taiwan belong to? Well, they they certainly don't belong to whoever the U.S. says they belong to, or to China because China claims them. Wouldn't Taiwan belong to the Taiwanese? And and we 
we have a tendency, I think, to to use language and to you know and and to just go soft on what China's all about. They're not bad folks. How could anyone say they're not bad folks? This is they what they've done in Tibet, Tibet, uh, what they've done with the Uyghurs, what they've done with Falun Gong, what they're doing in Hong Kong, where someone who said, I like democracy might go to prison for life. Somebody who's 18 years old. It's like, this is just, it's, it's sad. It's tragic. It's despicable. It's horrific. And it's this totalitarianism that's out there. And um, it just seems to me that we, we have a tendency not to, not to address it. Ethnic cleansing. You know, why would you call it ethnic cleansing? It's kind of a, you know, it almost is kind of an interesting term, except it's like ethnic murdering is what it is. And, and we have, I just can't believe that you, you have Tiananmen Square happen where China opens up, begins to gain some wealth, and people push for democracy, for some control of the people over their own lives. And it's not pushed down by most of the people. It's clear, it's obvious right off the bat that the people want that. And it is smashed by murdering a bunch of people. And now it's everyone's silenced on it. Anywhere where China has any control, you're not allowed to speak of it. This is and 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 look at look at what's happening in Hong Kong. I mean, it's it's just it's one thing after another, and uh, and yet so much of our media doesn't ever come to grips with that. And, you know, it's just we have to see this for what it is. And I, 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 you know, maybe I maybe this is hyperbolic. I don't think so. I see China as I think I would have seen Germany in 1936. Uh, and and all the fear of war. I, I sure don't want there to be war. And I am afraid there could be war. There could be, you know, they, they, they threaten to invade Taiwan all the time. But I also think, just like in that circumstance, that pretending they're not bad is not going to help stop war. And acquiescing or appeasing them, it's why I've sometimes referred to Taiwan as the Sudetenland of today, you know, saying, hey, whatever territorial claim they make is somehow theirs if it's in their region and we can't really do anything about it it's it's a you froze well you froze and we're back that was, right. a, that was a very short little uh, jump for people in the audience but for you and me that was like a half hour out of our lives uh, <laughs> thank you skype the internet and everything else but you know what you were saying so you can just go right back into the game well, my whole point is that the stronger uh, Taiwan is, the stronger the United States is, the, the, the better. And the more we alert people across the globe, across our country, you know, everywhere we can, that we're facing a totalitarian threat. And, um, and the only argument I ever hear 
from American Americans about that is that, well, we're a threat too somehow. Well, let's stop being a threat and let's stop ignoring other threats. And it's all within our power. Uh, but but I think this, what happened with the coronavirus shows us, and I hate to be like the, you know, the, uh, the guy of doom and gloom, but it shows us how serious this problem is. Our national media was so focused on Donald Trump and getting rid of Donald Trump that he had to be the bad guy for coronavirus. They weren't comfortable allowing it to be a somewhat nuanced thing. They dramatically understated the bad behavior of China. It's not the first time. It won't be the last time. Uh, I, I tend to think that if the editorial board of the Washington Post and the New York Times and much of our media, but that's the two biggest forces right there. If they could vote for Xi Jinping or Donald Trump, Xi Jinping would have been our president. Um, and and it's a problem. Uh, so it it's uh, it's something that we well it, it, we we might as well walk right into the next problem, or at least the next. It's not a problem. It's an illumination of the same problem which is uh, Wednesday, we had HCQ blackout. And we said HCQ because uh, hydroxychloroquine is, uh, is a long word. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, here again, uh, CBS comes out with a story pointing out that, you know, the race for vaccines has, has really dominated the headlines and that there's been so much less news about ways to help people who have COVID uh, stay out of the hospital, get out of the hospital, not have a serious situation with it. And of course, you know, there's been a lot of hyping, I think, about how dangerous it is. And look, uh, half a million people have died. It's obviously got some danger attached to it. But for the most part, most people's risk factor is just tiny, tiny. And and with that sort of situation, and when you weigh lockdowns and, and or not lockdowns, and it's very low risk, well, if you can mitigate that risk a little more, for instance, if there are other drugs you could take, therapies you could have that would make it to where your risk of dying is not just one in 100,000 or one in 100 or whatever it is, but one-tenth of that or half of that. Well, then that changes the dynamic. And of course, CBS saying that, geez, uh, the vaccines have dominated the headlines. Well, that's partly because CBS has had vaccines dominate the headlines. And we suggest, a lot of people suggest, I suggest too, in HCQ Blackout, that, which you can find at thisiscommonsense.org, I suggest that part of the reason CBS didn't want to tell us more about ways it could be treated and some of the hopeful things that were coming is because the narrative was this was a terrible, horrible thing and that Donald Trump had done a horrible, terrible job and there's no, you know, until we get a vaccine, we must lock down. We, that narrative 
was dominant. And so it wouldn't make much sense to be talking about some of these different things. And since Donald Trump mentioning hydroxychloroquine and suggesting that it was gonna be really good, would that make him right? If it turns out that it is, is working more effectively, and there's been a lot of disagreement about this, but we've had, we've had kind of two things drive the media. One, there can't be a lot of disagreement. There's an official word, and that is gospel. And of course, that's the kiss of death. And then the other factor has been there can't be anything good that is attached to Trump. If Trump says the sky is blue, it's not really blue. It's a greenish, you know, something. Uh, whatever the whatever they have to do, the they're not going to be putting stories on their nightly news. They're not going to be filling their front page uh, with stories about Trump is right about anything. And so we had a different. Uh, we got a, uh, news about. COVID-19 through the prism of how can we unelect Donald Trump? And boy, that's a, that is really problematic. Now, maybe, just maybe, that's all over. That's all in the past. It's, it's a new day that was just because of Donald Trump. But I don't think so for a second. I think there's going to continue to be, and in fact, I think even if it, even if Donald Trump was the first little uh, little swerve outside the lines that the media did, those sorts of swerves outside the lines, especially if they're successful, tend to beget other swerves outside the lines, and it wasn't the first. This we have a narrative dominated, which means politically partisan dominated media. And it's a problem. We just don't, we, we, we do not have confidence in what we're being told. And we have a lot of confidence that there's a whole bunch of things that we're not being told. Yeah, there, your piece was about uh, fluvoxamine. That is what CBS wrote about. And that's kind of the funny yes. thing is about that. They talked about fluvoxamine and how it might, might do to some things to keep people out of hospitals and so forth. Which is precisely what they said, what Trump and others were saying about HCQ and many doctors. And now, and now, as you read it, as it shows in your piece, uh, the American Journal of Medicine recommends HCQ. They don't re recommend fluvoxamine. And CBS's piece did not mention that. They only mentioned yeah. that you ha they ha you have to be careful about these kind of things because of Trump and the whole hyping of of, of HCQ. It was a very peculiar twist on on. Well, I, I think it was a lie. I, I mean, I just, I just think that's propaganda. Is it was, it was carefully worded so that you didn't well, confront to, the truth. To mention both of those drugs, and not to mention that HCQ was, you know, was basically now approved. It, again, it's, it's the the spinning of the story never quite stops because they're still having to spin what happened in the past, and that's not going to change. So the spinning never stops. And, and if it were spinning, spinning almost suggests that you're putting a little wrinkle on the truth. But we're finding again and again that we're not told things. One of the things I noticed uh, about the, uh, you know, the coronavirus, and, and we've done several scripts about how now, uh, it wasn't this week, I think it was last week, we talked about, they're talking differently about this Wuhan lab now. 
now it's pretty obvious that uh, not only that it didn't come from the, the wet market, that's been kind of pretty obvious for a while, but it was nothing but it, it certainly didn't come from that lab. That's crazy talk. And it turns out more and more. And, and in fact, the WHO, which we've rejoined because they're such wonderful people, sends a delegation to China. That delegation has no expertise to look into and doesn't even really attempt to look into the Wuhan, what is it, Institute of Virology or something, uh, but the Wuhan lab that's been at the, at the center of a lot of this and that the United States gave our tax dollars to, by the way, which is almost never in the story. It was in that Newsweek story a year ago, but in the latest stories, no mention that we, actually, I take that back. One of the stories did mention that, that uh, the United States had, had uh, invested some funds there. But, but we are, the, the who sends somebody there, they don't look into it. The Chinese don't want them to say anything about it, except that it's very unlikely. And that's what they say. And that's what's run across uh, our media is that the one thing they've found out kind of from their going to China and probably sitting at the hotel and, you know, drinking uh, is that is that it's very unlikely it came from the lab. And then we find out they didn't even really look at that. That's just pure propaganda. The who once again spouting the Chi-Nazi line. And uh, oh, it's, it's very frustrating. The who did complain that China has not been completely forthcoming. They didn't really cooperate. That was one of the stories we got recently. Yes, yes, and that's and I we mentioned that, but but it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't the World Health Organization that complained. It was not the officials. Oh, right. It was not the head of the World Health Organization that complained. It was people who went on, who were part of that that team that went, complaining about the way it had been portrayed. So it's, I mean, they stepped up and, and uh, kudos to them. I mean, uh, thank goodness somebody like wants the truth out there. But it was, so it was people who were involved with that WHO uh, World Health Organization effort, but it wasn't really the, it wasn't the, the brass at, at uh, the World Health Organization. Now, the latest I've been hearing, by the way, is that the Wuhan labs were kind of a mess and that they, and the American government had been warned how bad they were. That's, that is one of the most recent things. Did you read that as well? Uh, this, yes, this that line. is, that's, that's kind of the latest. I think this week it came out that, yeah. that uh, there had been a, and I'm trying to think of whether that was in time for the last piece that, that I did on them. But, uh, but that is the, that, that in essence, United States state department people who were in China or who had some, something to do with this had, had kind of communicated to the embassy and to the State Department, this lab is a is a mess, and they're dealing with serious stuff, and they are not prepared to deal with that serious stuff, and and you know, it's it, there's a real debate about whether you should supercharge a bunch of viruses. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like chemical welfare, uh, welfare, <laughs> chemical warfare, and biological warfare is pretty scary stuff. And obviously you could have nothing to do with warfare, but just be trying to learn more about these viruses so you could fight them in the future. But somehow creating super duper good viruses that you learn to fight has the risk of creating super duper good viruses that kill a bunch of people that get loose somehow. And, um, and you know, 
we don't have evidence, a smoking virus gun uh, that shows that's what happened. But I'll tell you, the, the, the thing that keeps leading me to that is the fact that anytime you get anywhere close to it, there's a bunch of people saying, oh, no, 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 it's not that. It couldn't be that. It's not that. Let's not investigate that. Yeah, I'm, I'm willing to go further in my speculations, I think, that, that, than most people would. This The story of how it was a mess in Wuhan, that they, they just badly run, blah, 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 that could be a smokescreen for what really happened. No, we have to remember these people. We don't know who's lying to us. We just don't. Right. And Wuhan flu could have been let out of the lab on purpose. I think there's some evidence to believe that it was, and it could um, have been a shot fired by the Communist Party of China against. This is what we can do. You is that? And they proved. I mean, this. I mean, they want to invade Taiwan. You mentioned. Well, they do want to invade. We know they want to invade Taiwan. Well, maybe the first thing they want to do is fire a shot over the bow. We can bring you down. So don't you dare defend Taiwan. I mean, who knows what's going on here? I don't know what's going on. Right, I'm not saying that's right. what happened. It, but I, I think that we shouldn't... I think it's bad to preclude the possibility because it seems unlikely or because it or because it, it sounds conspiratorial. But, you know, governments are conspiracies. I mean, if the Communist Party is not a nice, free and open society, an, you know... It's an organized conspiracy to do, to do tyrannical things. No, it's... Uh, you're right. One of the first things that China did to hit back on that somehow they had hidden anything was to charge that this was a, a military bioweapon from the U.S. And so often, you know, is the, the person who's always scared of, that somebody's going to take their stuff, you kind of sometimes wonder, do you take other people's stuff? Is that why you're always so worried someone else is going to do that? And sometimes when people make charges, they're pointing to themselves. So, you know, there's that. It It's um, almost all of the different ramifications of this. Uh, I look at the fact that they shut down travel in the country and then allowed free and open travel outside of the country. And that could just be, oh, what a what a stupid mistake. And and I, if that turned out to be the truth, I wouldn't be at all surprised that it was just a stupid mistake. They didn't think about travel going outside the country. They were focused on protecting their own. They maybe people from Wuhan couldn't travel, but I think they could uh, outside the country. So so there was all this travel that sent the virus outside, and that's I think somewhat suspicious. But it, on some of this, we're never going to know. Uh, it's very likely we'll just never know the full story. So you got to step back and look at the big picture. And when you look at the big picture of, of China, what is it? Well, <laughs> last time there was kind of some protests for freedom and democracy, thousands of people were gunned down in the streets uh, of Beijing. Falun Gong is a kind of spiritual movement uh, believes in, you know, it's kind of like a new age thing is the way kind of this American sees it, uh, but not very threatening, not very threatening unless you have this totalitarian mindset in which anyone else having any influence on people cannot be allowed. And, you know, they have just been destroyed. You look at what China's done in Tibet. 
You look at what they're doing with the Uyghurs. This is genocide. Everybody recognizes it. Increasingly, everybody admits this is genocide. Well, would we be rushing to, you know, if we knew in 1936 what we know today, would we be rushing to go to the Olympics in Berlin? Would we, was the, was the problem that, that we didn't stop the Nazis because we didn't engage with them enough? We didn't trade with them. We didn't talk to them about how to fix climate change. Is that why it just spiraled out of control? Or did it spiral out of control because we did not recognize the threat that was there? And we really didn't do anything to dissuade them from continuing to be totalitarian nightmares. In fact, we appeased them and encouraged them. to. Be, we made it to where their threats were successful. And so... You know, the more I hear about, well, China claims that territory, you know, after they take that territory, they're going to claim something else. You know, the the German, you know, the Hitler didn't claim all the territories at once. He kind of went from one to the other. So it's, uh, no, that's, uh, and, and again, it's the power of free speech. If people throughout the world can speak to one another, we will come to some conclusions that will be very helpful in fighting totalitarian regimes. And that in some ways, you know, the ability of, of China to shut people up is, is scary. But even scarier is the ability of, of them to get us to shut up. We, we just can't. And we have to look at our institutions and our elected officials and others and and make them face the face the music. Let's face the facts. But you know, it really is hard when the dominant political party is pro-China. They really are, and they are pro Democratic Party in America likes free speech abrogations. They really want to clamp down on free speech in a multiple ways. They, there's multiple ways they're doing it. They've uh, they, they they encouraged their politicians encouraged and really pushed social media to clap down on free speech. And it's not yes. just that. It's not just that. There are many well, and, avenues. They're also yes. for hate speech laws, which clamp down on free speech. Therefore, they're just all they're, and they're they're just for the whole woke uh, harassment of anyone who Cancel disagrees culture. with them. So it's a yes. cultural revolution stuff. To me, the Democratic Party seems like a weird mirror of the Communist Party of China. Uh, it's more class-based than elite based but it's still very very strong and uh, i think that this is it's very hard to convince half of the population that they've embraced evil but i think that arguably they have embraced evil and they're very very dangerous right now because the people who well, think they're moral and they're embracing a great evil are really really dangerous and we're living in really weird times uh when the party called democracy uh, is basically against democracy yes and and against the essential Republican uh, constitutional check on democracy or any type of tyranny, which is the First Amendment. Well, sure. And, you know, I, I, I have had a number of people go, well, why are you so against the Democrats? In 2015, 2014, they introduced a constitutional amendment that would rewrite the First Amendment and make it to where they could regulate campaign speech involving any money and campaign finance and, and so on in a way that is the opposite 
of the way the First Amendment is written. First Amendment says they can make no law abridging freedom of speech. This would say they could make any reasonable law they wanted to controlling freedom of speech. It was so draconian that it had a provision specifically saying it did not abridge freedom of the press. They felt the need to say this does not, and I guess they want to make sure they had the New York Times and the Washington Post on board. And that's when I see the New York Times and the Washington Post talk about democracy and freedom, I know that they support passing laws that allows them to have freedom of speech and continue to keep their First Amendment rights, but strips me of mine. And so I'm not very friendly to them at all. And I can't unknow that. I think so many people would, you know, of course they're not for repealing my freedom of speech. Yes, they are. And and so it's it's really, um, and that was years ago. And then, of course, in 2016, every, that came up for a vote, didn't have the votes, thank goodness, but every Democratic senator voted for it, every single one, and Hillary Clinton endorsed it. And the Washington Post and the New York Times endorsed it. So I know who I'm talking to. I'm talking to Xi Jinping without the, you know, kind of advanced degree or something. It's, uh, it really is pitiful. And is that hyperbolic? We don't know yet because history hasn't played out. But what I'm saying is the potential for this to be tyranny writ large over what was previously of the, the, not just a part of our constitution and our free society, but the very center of it, the first amendment. It's, you know, and, and what is the point of the first amendment that you're able to say what you want about lemonade at your stand? No, that you can say what you want about the people in power. It's why when the, when McCain-Feingold was passed years ago, that literally said, the federal government through the Federal Election Commission, a partisanly developed agency, which should be unconstitutional, just knowing that alone, but that the FEC could regulate anything you said if you mentioned the name of a candidate running for Congress or an incumbent who's in Congress or showed their likeness. Can you imagine King George, if he would have thought to say, you can't show my likeness or mention my name? I mean, it's just so, you know, as you were saying what you were saying about, you know, the the Democrats are kind of with the, you know, they're they're like the the they want to be communist China or Chinazis, because we point out they're not really communists. They're much more kind of fascist uh, writ large. But but. There's a lot of truth there. And here's the flip side of that, however. People recognize that's not popular. The polling I've shown, uh, one, it shows that people have gotten very woke in a real way about China. It also shows that every demographic group politically, if you look at conservative, you know, more less conservative, Republican, moderate, independent, conservative Democrat, more liberal Democrat. It's not until you get to liberal Democrats that they're somewhat split about China. 
half of them thinking, you know, roughly half, like 40% thinking uh, China is a real problem and 40% thinking, yeah, they just have a different way and maybe it's a good way. Uh, and then 20% kind of undecided. Well, every other group is 60% or more that China has become a real problem. And, uh, and, and so there is some of that connection, although the Congress on almost all these measures has recognized where the country is. Because anything they're passing legislatively that has to do with China in the last last couple of years has been very strong and bipartisan, condemning China, pro-Taiwan, pro-Hong Kong, uh, pro-freedom. But again, that's been in at least arguably could be because it's been a political issue and they know they will suffer if that's if if they're on the other side of that. Well, we're certainly going slow through the week. Because we have two more to go Thursday and Friday, right? We do. And uh, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Thursdays, which is not nitpick. And uh, I'm going to screw that up. I may spend a lot of time just trying to say the title. Not nitpicky. Uh, it's a great title, but I, did, I haven't said it out loud, I guess, because not nitpicky. It's tough. Uh, and that's a, that's a uh, uh, Timothy Verkula original title. I can't remember what we had on this, but it wasn't as good as well, that. It wasn't very good, but but it, it's just playing off of the last paragraph. because There's a rhetorical question, and the title answers it. In essence, what we're talking about, and you can go to thisiscommonsense.org and, and read it for yourself, but we're talking about uh, the governor in Texas says the mask mandate, which was his mandate, is no more. And and my view is that all the masks, mandates and everything else just hasn't had any impact on the virus. Let's just pretend that it was all well intentioned, but it just didn't work. Can't win them all. Uh, viruses are, are that way. kind of. Uh, so uh, but he said no more to the mask mandate. And um, and the mayor in Austin says, well, we're going to keep the mask mandate. But of course, that's not where the power to have that mandate, and I and I question whether there's really even the power at the governor's office to have that mandate. Of course, but uh, but in essence, we make the point and and ask the question. You know, do we want government? Because the mayor says we're going to do everything in our power. You know, to save lives by forcing people to wear masks, even though there's no good evidence that it's actually saving lives. We have to follow the science, except if it doesn't agree. You know, if we don't have any scientific evidence, then we just go to draconian measures. Um, but the truth is, we don't want government to do everything in their power because they have a ton of power. We want them only to do things within their authority, within their constitutional limits. And we determine their authority, of course, by what the Constitution says they can do. But let me let everyone in on a little secret, which I think most of you already know, which is they get their power from what they get away with, from what they can do that we don't step up and stop them, and or that we don't signal ahead of time. We don't even have to step up and stop them because we've signaled ahead of time, you try that, and you're out. Uh, so that's where they get their power. And um, and I think it's very important to recognize the difference between government's authority and government's power, because we want to limit their authority constitutionally. That's very important. 
But if we let them just roll over the Constitution, if we have no real democratic check on them holding office, if, you know, at a certain point, whatever their authority is, is a piece of paper. The reality is what their power is. And we've got to make sure that's limited too, uh, which really leads us to our final Friday uh, commentary, zero risk. And I really should say zero risk because we decided we were putting an exclamation point on that. We have come to a place where people seem to think everything should be handled. No one should ever be hurt. No one should ever die. No one should ever be sad. There should be no risks. We should just wear enough helmets and padding on us or something that just nothing bad ever happens. And, uh, uh, and now I'm going to forget. Are you trying to remember Veronique Deruji's name? Veronique. Yes, that's exactly what. Well, because remember we were going through it and I, I, we had it as something else. And so then Veronique, you know, I've always, I thought in school they gave me a choice. I could learn French. And I thought, no, <laughs> the French for the benefit due to my respect for the French. I said, no, <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that to your language. Uh, anyway, um, uh, but Veronique Deruji, uh, who has written a bunch of great stuff at Reason, I have to say, uh, we have, we have, uh, this is not the first time that we have quoted uh, from her pieces, but she wrote a piece uh, titled Stop trying to create a zero risk society. And it's, it's a little bit, we've kind of complained in the past about things like no child left behind, you know, which is a great goal, except it's an impossible goal. And oftentimes impossible goals are not really great goals. It might be a wonderful, wouldn't it, we're working toward a world that someday magically, you know, will, will turn out this way. Even then, it, it, it seems to me when we deal in impossibilities and fantasy is not helpful, especially when it's a, a real government with police powers that takes our money to do it with. Then the fantasy of it just isn't isn't just kind of, well, that's silly. It's it's somewhat not helpful. So she's pointing out that there are real trade-offs to lockdowns which I think a huge chunk, maybe a majority of the population of these United States still doesn't really get. Uh, we so don't want anyone to die of COVID-19 that we have taken actions that I think haven't really stopped people dying from COVID-19, but have made it to where people have died of other things. The suicide rates up, other problems have developed that maybe haven't led to death, but have led to nasty outcomes. Uh, kids, you know, if, if they're learning anything in regular school, well, that's more than they're learning when they're, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine who uh, was telling me about his six-year-old and uh, taking Zoom elementary school. He suggested it wasn't working out so well. Uh, it's just, you know, it, there've been a lot of costs to these lockdowns 
and they don't get recognized. Everything's the death count. And every and somehow pretending that by doing something, even though we have no evidence that it's actually reduced the death count, we can somehow feel better about ourselves. We've signaled our virtue. Um, so, you know, that's a problem. But to her credit, she also points out that we have decided to do other stupid things that we just because we're getting to zero risk where we're going to make it to where no one ever gets hurt by COVID. We're going to let politicians spend trillions, trillions, six trillion dollars uh, that they've spent and sending money to people. I'm going to get twenty eight hundred dollars. Well, now I haven't missed a day of work. I haven't missed a paycheck. Why are they sending me twenty eight hundred dollars? My wife and I. I mean, that's just that's stupid. That's stupid to to somehow spur the economy. Have I not been spending much? I keep thinking I'm spending a lot more than I, I really probably should. Uh, you know, these Starbucks drinks are expensive. Um, this is silliness. And yet it's it hasn't really been opposed. I mean, this this last round was opposed by the Republicans um, and it was opposed largely not because of spending the money on sending $2,800 to me, everybody seems to be for, uh, but, but it was opposed because 70% of the, of the, of the uh, relief was not, had nothing to do with COVID. It was bailing out pension funds in states and uh, doing all kinds of things the federal government shouldn't be doing and spending a lot of money crazy. But even the, the, the bailout or the help to people who were in trouble because of the pandemic, they were talking about this after the election and talking about people who were desperate and hurting because of this pandemic and who needed this money. Well, let me suggest that if you are desperate and need money in late November of one year or December, and it's March today, actually, March 12th, because we do this Friday night. Um, and you don't get any money. You know, they still don't have it now. If these people were starving, they're dead now. If these people were hurting, they're really hurting. If they were going to lose their home or their apartment, they're gone. They're out. And so the idea that this was any sort of searing need that we had to meet is bunk. If that was true, then these people should be, you know, held accountable for not really caring because they didn't do anything about it for months. The reality that is uh, increasingly, as we talked about, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, when there were two pieces in the Washington Post, both suggesting that the argument for doing these big spending measures was to buy votes. If you send money to people, they will like it and they will vote for you. And then you can control the government longer and do more good stuff. That's that's where we're headed. And part of it is to get people to, you know, I mean, this is a pretty, I think, sensible, common sense, conservative, not in the politically conservative, but just conservative in the sense that, hey, life's good. Let's not screw it up do no harm type of country. I think it's kind of a center right country, but wherever it is, it's certainly a don't screw it up 
You know, don't ruin it. Don't kill the golden goose, please. And and the only way you get that sort of people to let the government run amok is to scare the devil out of them. And if if they can get us to give them power until they get us to zero risk, they're going to have total power. And um, so that's that's a. Uh, you know, it's, you know, we in this piece, you know, we, we uh, you know, I do like the fact that, uh, and, and we may disagree a little bit about this, but I like the fact we talk about the, the one thing she didn't really mention was that uh, they, they rushed to do this vaccine, which is not really a vaccine, it's gene therapy. And, and that, with all the talk about zero risk and getting to zero risk, and we have to do whatever it takes to protect people, almost no discussion of the fact that this was a much different vaccine that probably shouldn't be called a vaccine, and uh, or that there's any risk to it. And that gets us back to something that we talk about all the time because it's a huge pervasive problem. And that is that we, we have politicians who view us as children. We have media, mega media outlets that view us as children who don't want to tell us what they don't think we can handle. And what that translates into is they don't want to tell us anything that might get us to think for ourselves and act in a way that's not how they prescribe. And so I think that the one bad thing now, you know, I can see myself taking this uh, vaccine. I can see myself deciding not to. I've had COVID. I had a test. It showed I had antibodies. You know, I'm protected to some degree. Uh, it's hard to know exactly what that degree is, uh, you know, how long I'll be protected and how much I'll be protected. But one of the things they're, they're finding about these so-called vaccines is we mean to need a, a better word for it because there's like no word. We're just going to call it a vaccine, even though it's not. But uh, it doesn't seem to stop people necessarily from getting it again, but makes it to where it's not going to be as damaging and as harmful, and you're not going to be spreading it as much. Well, that's a you know that's that's a kind of an interesting little difference there. Uh, so you know maybe I'm better off with just the just the antibodies. It's the, the, the reason I don't feel better off about any aspect of this is that science isn't my gig. I'm not a doctor. I don't have time to read medical journals. I'd like there to be a full, ferocious debate about gene therapy, about vaccines, about uh, COVID-19, about every political issue under the sun, about every medical issue under the sun, so that I can hear what people are saying, so that I can get smarter without changing my whole life to study every little single issue individually all by myself. And that's the sort of strength that countries like the United States of America have always had is the openness. When so much of the analysis during this last year, especially when Trump was still a threat to our media, uh, 
much of the analysis was how wonderful a job China did on this compared to the job that the United States did under Trump. <clears throat> and the reality is the country that handled it worse, the worst in the whole world is China because they hit it. They allowed millions of people to die because they're a closed, obnoxious, tyrannical society. And 90 miles off their coast is a country that's very, uh, you know, aware and paying attention to what's happening in China because they're scared of an invasion. And they have people over there all the time doing business and traveling and so on. And they pick up things and they picked up on this early and they were aggressive and they used a free society in which information was communicated freely and in which people had some confidence that their government was on their side, not a dictatorial, totalitarian, obnoxious mess. And Taiwan did the best in the whole world. So the real lesson out of all of this is how great freedom is. It'd just be, <laughs> it'd be wonderful if our media could learn that lesson. I'm reading a Journal of the Plague Year by Daniel Defoe, which was in 1665, London had a horrible plague. Lots and lots of people died. He lists them, and I've forgotten the numbers. Uh, and it's basically just about how awful it was and what the governments did. And one of the things they did, uh, according to law, was a legal maneuver, is the same thing that China did. And it's extreme in trying to control, is they nailed people into their houses. They, they closed the doors. Yeah. Yeah. And force people to live a, a month or, or about there or so more uh, without any contact from anyone else. And uh, Daniel Defoe was good. He, he ruminated on the last page I read, it's on page 120, in case anyone's interested in the weird old 19th century edition that I'm reading. Uh, but uh, it's very interesting. He says, you know, looking back at it, he has no evidence that it did any good. It was according to law. You know, they had, they had a law about it, they did it. But the the virus just wouldn't, you know, well, he didn't call it a virus. There was no such thing as virus in those days. But right. the contagion spread regardless of what they did. And he yeah. has no evidence that it really did help. Uh, nevertheless, people, a lot of people think that's the best way to go. And in the media, that appears to be the case, is locking people in their houses is what is the extreme, which is the extreme measure that China did, the extremist measure they did, is what they praised. That's yeah. what they praise, yes. and I yes. think that that should terrify us. That is what our media praises, is locking people in their houses. It does terrify me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, this is commonsense.org? Yes. Are we good or what? We've got, we've got our web address down. Nothing. None, I didn't no have to think about it. Out. I just said it, and then I wondered, did I just say that right? You know, so to... <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So I guess we should stop and uh, let people do something else. Well, thanks much, Tim, and everyone for listening. <laughs>